0: Welcome to the Florida Divorce Podcast, your source for the information you need to successfully get through your divorce and into the next exciting chapter of life. Now, here's your host, Attorney Scott Kalish.
1: Hey, everybody, this is Attorney Scott Kalish. I'm a divorce and family law attorney here in South Florida. Today, I have Jason Spillman on, forensic accountant. How's it going, Jason? Good, Scott. Thanks to have me back on the podcast. Yeah, no, for sure. Today we're going to talk about stocks and how they play a role in um, a Florida divorce. So let's just jump right into it. Tell me about equity compensation. How is that handled in divorce from a forensic accountant perspective? So I think there's two main
0: things that you see a lot of times nowadays. I think a lot of big companies are doing it as well as smaller companies they're trying to incentivize their employees with equity compensation which includes stock options and what they call restricted stock units or they refer to them as RSUs. A stock option is sometimes, you know, let's say you're have you doing a divorce of someone that works at Home Depot and they're an executive at Home Depot. Part of their compensation will be maybe they'll grant you 10,000 options in, in Home Depot or a certain number of restricted stock and it's a way for them to incentivize people to make the company profitable make the stock do well it's kind of uh it's an incentive type of compensation so when people get divorced obviously the assets are in play and the income is in play so these type of awards become sometimes controversial because they're a little complicated to decipher but an option it will give you the right to purchase stock you don't have to purchase the stock but let's say Home Depot is is trading at $100 and you have an option for $50, which is what they call the strike price. You can buy that stock in Home Depot for $50 and it's Mm -hmm. instantly worth $100, right? So there's value to you of $50. Let's say Home Depot is trading at $30 and the strike price or the exercise price of the option is $50. You can't exercise that stock and make any money because the strike price is higher than than the current market price. Obviously, in a perfect world, the employees would like to get options in the company and then the value of the company goes up. So someone that receives options is incentivized to make the company as valuable as possible so their options will be valuable. Options typically have an expiration date. So you'll get granted an option in Home Depot, let's say for $50. And Mm -hmm. you have a number of years to exercise it at any time you could exercise it what's different about options is you get taxed only when you exercise the option. Um, So like let's say Home Depot's worth $100 and you have a strike price of 50, you don't have to go buy the stock for 50, it's kind of a one transaction type of deal. So you don't get taxed until you exercise it. On the other hand, there's what they call restricted stock units and those are normal shares in the company, but they also vest over time typically because they want to incentivize you to stay with the company and they want to incentivize you to make the company more valuable. But those, when they vest, they become freely tradable shares. So I would have shares in Home Depot and you get taxed Mm -hmm. when they vest because then you receive a portion of a share in the company. But as you can imagine with all this vesting and tax issues, A lot of times we come in as forensic accountants to try to sort it all out for equitable distribution purposes, but also in terms of determining someone's income for alimony and child support.
1: And you just did a case that involved these issues,
0: right? Yes. So I actually have had multiple cases recently involving these issues. And the big issue is what they call a coverture analysis. So Uh let's say you file for divorce and the next day you receive options, you receive a 100 options in Home Depot and they vest over four years evenly, right? Mm -hmm. So 0% of those options will be marital options. Mm -hmm. But let's say two years ago, you received a four-year vest in a 100 options in Home Depot. What -hmm. we would do is we would calculate the fraction because I guess the, the legal concept is the marital labor and where that went, right? So like, let's say you got them two years ago and you filed for divorce right halfway through when those options were vesting, you know, Mm -hmm. a portion of those would be marital options and a portion of those options would be non-marital options.
1: Starting with the date of filing of the divorce case. And that's sort of our our, our boundary between the two, non-marital and marital,
0: yeah. So the filing of the divorce action creates a boundary as you can imagine, there's all types of schedules. Sometimes they'll vest a thousand up front and then a hundred every month. So you need mm-hmm. to figure out what they call each tranche to figure out what's the right percentage of marital versus non-marital and That could be very complicated because of all the vesting schedules and things of that nature, and restricted stock are very similar where we'll have to do what we call a coverture fraction.
1: Question for you. This is more of like a practical question. And In your experience with, in, the, in these cases recently with these issues, did you have to uncover the existence of, of these stock options or the RSUs, or did they, were they just freely sort of disclosed? So my question is that where can someone sort of look to to just confirm whether or not these exist? right? Is this like discovery you're propounding to the employer or is this something that you can see on a pay stub? If you came across this, like where are, are you seeing like objective evidence of their existence?
0: Yeah. So I think there's a lot of documents that anytime there's one of these types of plans, a lot of times people know about it. A spouse will know that, oh, like, <laughs> you know what <laughs> I mean? Like, I'm sure when you worked at a job, your spouse knew your base salary and and bonus <laughs> and things like that. A lot of times this is part of someone's, their package, right? They have a, a W-2 salary plus bonus plus options plus restricted stock. So when these vest, you'll see them on a W-2 or you'll see gotcha. them uh, on a pay stub. But like, for gotcha. example, the options, they're not taxed until they are exercised, right? So maybe someone got options and it didn't show up on a tax return yet because there's no taxable event. So a lot of times, like as part of discovery, we'll get the employment agreements, we'll get W-2s, we'll get pay stubs for companies involving options or restricted stock. We'll also try to get the stock plans, those types of Mm -hmm. documents. Because I think the big issue in these types of matters is, are these awards being issued for past service or to incentivize future service, right? Because let's say I get those stock options, Granted to me the day after I file, if that was mm-hmm. a reward for previous you know let's say I crushed it the past two years at my job and that was for yeah. those past two years when I was married, oh. that would be considered a marital you know even though it was received a day after filing, those could be a hundred percent marital
1: and I want to make sure everyone understands the reason for that and that's because the work that was done to earn that benefit was during the marriage as opposed to work not being done or work not being started yet, right? So if the work starts during the the case while or after the date of filing, then that would be considered non-marital under Florida law.
0: Yeah, and there's also ways that you could look in the public domain, right? Because let's say you look at, let's say you know your spouse works at Home Depot Corporation, Sure. Home Depot Corporation's a public company. You could go look up and see what's going on with their options. Maybe your spouse may not be high enough, high up enough where they disclose that in the financials, but you may be able to get a sense that like there's some type of
1: this is a possibility and we can like propound some discovery to Home Depot asking for any stock options or RSUs, you know, that were offered to this individual. Yeah. I mean, it's a great point, right. That I think is overlooked sometimes.
0: And privately held companies have these also, which it's easier when you're dealing with a bigger company because you can tell what the market price of the stock is. You know, another issue with actually dividing these is a lot of times you're dividing an asset that's kind of a contingent asset, right? Because let's say I've gotten a 100 units in Home Depot that vest over four years. Two years from now, I may not be working at Home Depot. I could get laid off. I could go change jobs. Home Depot could get bought by another company and become, you know, Lowe's and Home Depot could merge and become a different company. So there's a lot of considerations that you need to take when valuing these because if you work at this company and you're not sure that you're going to work there, do you really want to pay out your spouse for value that you may not get if you end up leaving your company? So a lot of times these types of assets they're held and plus you can't necessarily, there may be transfer restrictions, right? I can't transfer my options in Home Depot to Scott Kalish because he Mm -hmm. doesn't work there. Or I can't transfer them to my spouse because they don't work there. So a lot of times when these end up getting settled, one spouse will hold them in what they call constructive trust on behalf of the other spouse. Or you may be able to negotiate it out where one person holds the stock and the other person takes some other type of asset. But the risk in all of this is a lot of times you don't know what the value of the stock is gonna be. Like let's say right now Home Depot's trading at 30 and my options have an exercise price at 50. I don't know, maybe after the divorce, Home Depot shoots up to a 100. So like yeah. there's some issues there as it relates to how do we actually divide these Yeah. and what are we dividing and how we negotiate and what all these things are really actually worth. It also gets tricky when you're dealing with restricted stock because you're also dividing a brokerage account. And a lot of times these restricted stock, they vest into a brokerage account. So a a lot of what we do as forensic accountants is we're like tracing and making sure we're dealing apples to apples in terms of taxes, right? Because $1 of cash is not worth $1 of securities that may be subject to tax. Sure. Uh, and also just tracing and making sure we don't double count the division of a brokerage account and or double count the value mm-hmm. of a, an equity
1: award. Sure. With your recent experience, were these companies publicly traded or were they private companies or both? I
0: would say both. I, I see it all the time. I mean, public companies, you probably see more often because they're huge and they have all their middle managers may end up getting... Some form of compensation and not even people who are quote unquote wealthy, right? There could be someone making one or 200 grand a year and they get 50 grand a year in equity compensation, yeah. right? Like, obviously that's a lot of money, but here in South Florida, that's very common. You know, you don't, you're not considered sure. like super high net worth at that level. So it's interesting because we get involved in cases involving people who are also employees of companies because of some of these issues.
1: How do you deal with valuing stock options or these RSUs with a relatively smaller, like, let's just say like a middle-sized private company? Like, how are you valuing those?
0: Well, we don't really end up valuing them because it's so subjective, right? So in a case like that, we may end up just figure out what portion of the units are marital versus non-marital. Because a lot of the times with the privately held companies, you don't know what those options are going to be worth until there's some yeah. liquidity event. Uh um, gotcha. so like let's say I've done all my calculations and I've determined that, you know, this conglomerate of dry cleaners, which I think I've used on, on the podcast before, this conglomerate mm-hmm. of ten dry cleaners, let's say I have options and, and I've determined that they're twenty five percent marital. Right? Mm-hmm. So 25% of those units, or, or really 12.5% of those units would end up being held, half. <laughs> yeah, half of the 25 would be held by one spouse who owns it or has rights to it in constructive trust. And if and when those there's some liquidity event and those group of 10 dry cleaners rolls up into a, a private equity firm, that's when you would get paid out after tax. But it's really difficult to value these things because it's really contingent on some type of future event. But at the same time, the earnings of those happened potentially during a marriage, which is something that we really need to be cognizant of.
1: With these stock options and RSUs, how do they play into the the issues of like, are they equitable distribution, like more, more of like a property right that we have to divide, or are we considering them for income, right, for purposes of alimony or child support? Can you kind of walk us through what you think and and your experience on that?
0: Yeah, so I think that's like the million-dollar question because I think it it all, and I hate to sound like a typical accountant or lawyer, but it really (laughs) depends on the facts and circumstances, right? Like, is this a normal part of their compensation? Like, here's some of the questions I would look at is like, are they always getting this? Is this an every-year thing, or is this a one-time event? I think that would probably play into the legal arguments that get made. Absolutely. Does this person have access to that money, right? I could be granted options, but they're all below the strike price or what we call outside the money, right? So they're not really worth anything. Or they're not really a source of cash. I get these restricted stock, but they're kind of in a privately held company, they're locked up. I can't get liquidity from them. I can't borrow against them. I can't sell them. So I think those are all the things that we would look at, but it's really a gray area, I think, in the law and also in finance because it kind of is both, right? Like if you own stock options, it's an asset, but it's also, if you get them regularly, it's also kind of a source of income. So it really depends. And, and these are like some of the debates that we have between forensic accountants and mediators and-
1: On different sides of the case, for sure, yeah. Just because
0: of the facts and circumstances. And these are the things that we discuss, whether it should be included in alimony calculations or not. But you just have to be really careful that you don't double count. Because the same thing that you're saying is non-marital or is a marital asset, you want to also make sure that you're not also including that specific award in the person's income. It really, these things sometimes- they appear easy at the surface, like, oh, it's just 50% marital, but then there's all these little tax issues, and when you actually have your equitable distribution chart and it comes to splitting these assets, there's all these yeah. very little small things that you need to be careful with.
1: For sure. No, I think that's a great point. And lastly, I guess, to, to leave the audience with this part, the tax aspect, I mean, how would you sort of characterize or frame that? that part of, of of having this in a case
0: yes yeah, so the tax aspect is important because it's especially if you're dealing with like a long drawn out divorce like where mm-hmm. the taxes paid on marital units with marital funds or were they paid with non marital funds like sometimes things could get very thorny when it comes to taxes are we dividing the current brokerage account which includes options that invested vested that are also non-marital, so should I be getting a credit for taxes? I mean, the tax issues, depending on the timing of the date of marriage, the timing of the date of filing, the time of when you actually divide these things during a mediation mm-hmm. or a trial mm-hmm. date, I mean, all those things, whether you're filing jointly or continue to file jointly or file separately, it's always, unfortunately, the facts and circumstances always change the nature of these cases. But I think any asset, you need to just be very careful that you're comparing assets on apples to apples basis because yeah. you don't want to take an asset that's subject to tax in right in your column for of equitable distribution yeah. versus someone who gets an asset free and clear. That's
1: not so. subject. Yeah, you're absolutely right. No, it's it's something to be cognizant of and, and to keep um, in mind, right, the tax aspect. And um what money may have went to pay those taxes. So, I, I mean, it's definitely something that, that has to be uh, addressed and, you know, looked out for because it could be a significant amount of money. Uh, well, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast again to talk about this uh, nuanced sort of issue. Um, and, and uh, you know, obviously you'll uh, definitely be back again. Thanks. Absolutely. Uh,
0: Thank you for having me on, Scott. On. It's always a pleasure.
1: Of course. Take care. Thanks
0: for listening to the Florida Divorce Podcast. To learn the 10 secrets behind every successful divorce, visit FloridaDivorcePodcast.com. If you'd like Scott's help in your divorce case, go to KJLawFLA.com.